Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Make a decision and just go forward and try and drive it in the, uh, in the direction you want. And the, the trick then out of that, the, the output is, is you know, have you made a difference? Today I'm talking to Air Chief Marshal Sir Simon Bryant, a former Royal Air Force officer who served as Commander-in-Chief of Air Command and who now runs his own company, Simon Bryant Consultancy Limited. Simon lives near Chichester with his wife Helen and they have two grown-up children. Welcome Simon and thank you for joining me. Thanks Andrew, it's a pleasure. So Simon, you grew up in various parts of the world because your father was in, in the Air Force. Uh, you went to Stanford School in Lincolnshire. Tell us a little bit about the younger Simon. What were you like at school? Um, I do remember the uh, itinerant nature of the, uh, the childhood and uh, we were moving effectively every 18 months uh, from the, the earliest age that I can recall, uh, which took us through the, uh, the very cold winters of the early 60s, um, living in um, not very impressive uh, RAF accommodation with, with ice running down the walls, um, and uh, a very difficult school at a place called Durrington while father was serving at, uh, at Boscombe Down, and, and that left a, a very sharp memory and uh, not, not a very pleasant memory but um whole host of that that, that winter um, we then went from there up to uh, my father was posted to a place called area of Wittering, which is in um, the southern end of lincolnshire and uh, that was in the days of the v-bomber and at that point i, I went to school as a, as a day boy at stanford and i had two years as a day boy before the next inevitable posting turned up and the posting was to the united states uh, to washington dc and the, uh, the choice was therefore either to go or not. And, and in those days, um, not was the obvious answer because it was absolutely standard that uh, one went off to boarding school. So probably a little earlier than anybody had anticipated, um, I transferred from a day boy to, uh, to boarding at Stanford and um, that then provided really the, uh, the basis and the bedrock um, for my, my, my teenage years. So I was at Stanford um, for nine years in, in total and um, went through a number of uh, boarding houses. The, the experiences were, were varied and um, as, as you look back on them now and having put my children through boarding school, um, quite, um, uh, quite rigorous, I, I think it would be fair to say. Um, but the thing that drove me through all of this was uh, friendship and sport. And uh, there was lots of both at Stanford. So you did then move on to, to Nottingham to, to study geography. What was it about geography, do you think, that captured your imagination? I think what I was always trying to do was to uh, set out a path to enjoy myself. And um, geography was the subject that, uh, that, that, that most appealed to me. So again, going to university was very natural progression. Um, it was almost aut automatic. If, if one hadn't gone to university, people would have been looking at you strangely. It was, it was in an era where we'd gone from uh, apprenticeships and more vocational um, through to more academic and uh, mm. probably veering back in the, uh, in the opposite direction. So geography was the obvious thing to do because it was the thing that I, uh, that I enjoyed most. 
Um, but it was very much a means to an end. So I, I keep coming back to sport, but it has been such a, a big part of my life. And the, uh, the trick was to get to university to play a good deal of sport. And there's a, there's a half step before that because the, the RAF comes in at, a, at an earlier stage. So um, at the age of 16, uh, I had been in the, uh, the combined cadet force at school. Um, one of the options for future career, which I think at that stage was probably twofold. I was either going to be a PE master um, or maybe join the Air Force um, because I'd seen something of school and I'd seen something of the RAF. So limited imagination. And uh, those were the, uh, the two paths that I was choosing to, uh, to pursue. And went down to Biggin Hill, um, fairly young. And um, I, I did surprisingly well, I, I think surprisingly for a whole host of people on the, uh, the various tests. And I was offered uh, what, what was then called the University Cadetship, which they, they would pay you through school and then, then, then university and uh, then into a, into a service commission. And the option was there either to, well, to, to, to join any branch effectively, but the assumption was always that um, one would be a pilot. And although it passed the aptitude, then that was not what I wanted to be. My, my father had been a navigator. I love geography. I wanted maps. Um, and the aspiration was absolutely to travel, uh, to mm. travel and play sport. So on, my, on that basis, I, I, I signed up at 16. Um, Big discussion with father because yes. uh, he thought that was far too young to be committing something and, and indeed he declined to sign um, because I was under 18 for me to have the scholarship and said you can sign your own life away when you're 18 but I'm not going to sign you know any um, any, any contract for you at, at 16. So that's what happened and went through to 18. 18th birthday I was just about at the end of the uh, the school term for my my A-levels and, um, and then I signed the contract and, um, and then to Nottingham, as you say, to do geography, yeah. play sport, and all sponsored by the Royal Air Force. How do you think you changed during your, what was it, I guess, three years uh, at Nottingham? How do you think you changed as a person? I think there was a degree of maturity there. Uh, <laughs> but in many ways, it was, um, it was very gradual. It was evolutionary. Um, I'd been at boarding school, and then effectively one went to university, which was like, um, boarding school, but you know, with a few more freedoms, and um, oh, and in particular the introduction of young ladies. So mm. um, that was probably the, uh, the 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 biggest awakening moment. And with the benefit of hindsight, I, I, I don't think I made the most of Nottingham. Um, I and there's a bit of an institution follows me all the way through here. So boarding school into university, mm. um, which was primarily done through through halls of residence. And yes, yeah, so you are growing up all the time, more responsibility, you know, less being handed to you. But was there a, a, you know, a big transitional moment where one left home for the first time and, and went there and, and, and had to wake up? No, there, there wasn't. The, um, probably the most difficult bit in, in, in some ways was the timing of arriving at university because this was the, uh, the mid 70s, so 1974, that I'm, I'm turning up there. And uh, before you go to university, you go off to do a thing called the University Cadet Introductory Course, RAF Cromwell, and you go there for two weeks to um, take your Queen's Commission or be given the Queen's Commission and, and, and then um, some of the nuances and the responsibilities that are expected of you as a, a newly commissioned officer. And uh, amongst the things that were enjoyed at Cromwell were, were two haircuts in, um, in, 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 in as many weeks. So I arrived at Nottingham in, uh, in September 1974, and um, I was the only male on the course with short hair. 
um, having um, having having come from the days of um, hair down to one shoulders at school, <laughs> quite unrecognisable. I, I think quite alien to um, most of the people who were looking at this this strange, clearly geeky person, uh, which wasn't the real me. But uh, first impressions are are important. So you, you did graduate from Nottingham. So then tell me about how your career within the RAF unfolded from that point. How were you stretched, and what was the direction? Um, well, the, the training was um, hard work, no doubt about that. You, you ended up with uh, a mere 12 weeks in those days. It's, it's significantly longer now at, uh, mm. at Cranwell. And, uh, you know, that was tough. I, I had no problem on the, uh, the fitness stuff and I had no problem on the, uh, the, the pure academic side, as, as you would expect. But putting all those together and then practicing leadership um, with like-minded people and in some very challenging circumstances because it was the uh, the winter course so when you you head off to go and do your outdoor survival or the uh, the major exercises there um, not only are the exercises um, physically and intellectually challenging but the circumstances the uh, uh, the climate is probably not very inducive to um, to having a good time outside so uh, I wouldn't say anybody found that particularly easy, and even the, uh, the, the fit people were, were quite stressed. Uh, finished there, and from there moved up for a January start up in um, just outside of Doncaster, the place that was then called RAF Finningley. And that was where we went through navigation training, which uh, lasted for some 18 months. And that was much less demanding on the, uh, the physical side, but it was just test after test after test, um, punctuated with flights, which were all examined with a simulator beforehand. Um, had a growing up moment there in that I, as I said, aspired to, uh, to travel the world. And the way you did that was by, by flying transport aircraft. And uh, what I really wanted to do was go off and fly an aircraft called the Hercules, uh, right. which is still in service with us today and then navigate on that. Uh, that's what they used to call a, a class two aircraft or a group two aircraft. And um, they wanted fast jet people. And, and sadly, I'd done well enough on the fast jet side to be selected for that stream. So there, there was a big um, coming together with the head of the nav school about um, whether I could stay and fly Hercules, which is what I wanted to do. Anyway, I, that was not a battle that I won. No. So that, that was uh, another of those growing up and, um, and really important moments because I would have been very good at navigating uh, the heavy aircraft. I was much less good doing the, uh, the fast jet, but, uh, but, but clearly adequate. Graduated from there. Um, it was a very um, feisty course that we were on. Um, and we had a fantastic um, time going, going through, uh, through Finningley. Then on to first aircraft and there's a, a big selection moment at the end and I went to uh, where there's a graduation and they all come in with the envelope and you're given an envelope as to which aircraft you're heading off to. So I went off to fly the Phantom, the aircraft being, being a navigator and the realising on the Cape was that my, my first tour was to, to Germany. So although I was not flying around the world in Hercules, I had um, three years out in Germany. Now the flying side, um, wasn't fantastic in that uh, I was very Essex, so like every trip. And um, so one had to go fighting through that um, in addition to, to the rest of the stuff. So uh, the, uh, again, the, the social life out in Germany and the sporting activities with, with skiing coming in there was, was, uh, was really important and, and, and drove me. And the flying was 
sort of to be tolerated. And then the, uh, and it's strange how these things happen. Um, so two um, fairly lively social years out there, um, had a fantastic time. I'd like to think that that pretty much then set the, uh, the, the, the mark for the rest of the, the, the service career. Yes. So can you sort of paint a little picture about perhaps some of the things where you felt you were adding more value than your sort of fair share or, or, a, or a moment that you thought, um, this is what I really want to do. This is really clicking and you put more energy over and above what you might have done previously. Well, 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 well the drive was advancement. You know, is, is always seeking um, to be to be recognised as, as being better than your peers, as good as the, the best of your peers and the top, the top echelon of your peers. So there, there was a pretty standard formula in, in those days. So you, you had to be above the average in the air. So you, you had to do all the things that were required there. Um, you had to gather some subject matter expertise around you. And I, I wasn't um, the world's best aviator, but I uh, went off and did electronic warfare and some other things again to, to mark you out from the others. Uh, there was always the, um, the, the the social and sporting side as well. So you would add to the uh, to the squadron by by generating those type of events, and then on the administrative side, which was kind of the third part of the triangle, go off and then and do the administrative side. And I've never had a trouble with with working long or hard, so I was able to do all of those. So what were the things that had opened up in front of you? What was the next step in your journey once you uh, made your mark? The next step was, um, was an exchange tour. And then everybody wants to go on an exchange tour. So there are a number of things I've always sought. And so you're back into this, uh, this travel. Well, I wanted to gather experiences. I wanted to go. And uh, I, I was very fortunate that I was selected to go off on a, an exchange tour to the United States, go and fly with the US Navy in an aircraft called the Tomcat, which... Um, was um, famous amongst other things for being the centerpiece of Top Gun. And we happened to be on exchange in the States while Top Gun was being made. And um, I was one of the, uh, the display navigators and no, no piloting skills, but uh, so up and down the East Coast and uh, that, that was, uh, was just extraordinary. And again, out there you're representing your country and you're determined mm -hmm. to be the best at everything. So flew a ridiculous amount, I mean, a thousand mm -hmm. hours in three years, which is a fast jet is, um, is probably well, uh, at least twice the rate you could have expected to be flying back in UK. Then all the other things as well. So long days working hard. So uh, always six weeks off in the summer to go off and explore the United States and really good friends there, completely different experience. Um, the flying very different. Obviously, the uh, bouncing onto uh, aircraft carriers, that was uh, a world of its own. And um, what anybody tells you, it's, um, it's pretty exciting. Um, a little too exciting at night most of the time. And then the, uh, the American approach to flying, and entirely different to the uh, American Navy's approach. So they valued things differently. So yes, of course, you had to be good tactically. Uh, but the Americans set great store by um, formation. There was great store by gunnery and um, being good around the boat, obviously, because the, the boat is, is a very demanding environment. And you don't only mess up for yourself if you, you get something wrong, but you, you mess up for the other guys flying and, and indeed for the whole boat if it's got steam extra because you've missed a, an approach or whatever. The most wonderful time doing combat. Um, so every winter we would decamp from uh, Virginia Beach, which was not a bad place to be anyway. Uh, for uh, probably the best part of for about half of the winter down to Key West and flying out of Key West doing two or three combat sorties a day and, uh, and then um, the delights of Key West of an evening. So it sounds an absolutely wonderful time where you must have learnt a lot by doing so gaining 
you know huge experience in that and and developing your skills and so on did you ever feel during that time that you were um uh, coming up against any sort of personal limitations or did you always feel that you were growing and developing and pushing your personal boundary in terms of your capability no absolutely it was, it was all just uh, just growing um and the, uh, the, the beauty was I, I, I was promoted early in the tour. One was able to spend most of one's time doing professional development. And you then come back to the, uh, to the UK and uh, you, you're in a really good place because um, although I go back to fly a different aircraft and then go to fly an aircraft called the, uh, the Tornado in the air defence version, actually I'm a pretty accomplished aviator at that point. And did you find the transition from... Uh, active flying into the more administrative side and leadership side, a difficult transition, or was that another step that actually you were growing into and it was uh, a natural next step for you that um, you were learning and you were having wider influence and so on? Well, not, not at this stage. Uh, the tour I did after the uh, the, the flying tour on, on the, uh, the tornado, down to be a, a personnel officer. And uh, I just have a passion for, for people. And you're running the careers of, in, in, in those days, actually your peers. So I was running the career for all the squadron leader, um, fast jets, um, aviators. And it was just wonderful because you're interested in all of them. Um, it's a fantastic jigsaw puzzle, trying to make sure that they get to do what they want to develop themselves or to enjoy themselves, and ideally both. And at the same time, making sure that the needs of the service are met. And also seeing the impact of that role on the careers of your peers and recognising the positive influence you have on other people is hugely rewarding as well, isn't it? Oh, it is. And uh, no, I mean, driving the, the, the people agenda has been big all the way through. And I was there at a fortunate time in that the Air Force was a reasonable size um, and there were about the right number of people for the uh, the right number of appointments. It's about a guarantee that um, if somebody wants to have a flying tour, which was the people I was looking after, and a staff tour, that would then position them for promotion if they, they had done well enough, or it would position them for um, a, a different lifeline. If, if they were content with what they were doing and wanted to do more flying, you could engineer a path for them to go off and do that. And uh, to be quite honest, very, very few, and there, there are a couple of difficult conversations when you were, you were deploying people, mm. but, but um, the logic was impeccable um, and one had the ability to go off and, and, and make it happen. So it might not be perfect for people. And I was there for a full three years. So you're held accountable throughout that. And again, a lot of people trying to rush through there, but by staying there three years, uh, you've got to have the conversation with the people, put them to an appointment. Um, and then, you know, if you made a promise to them, you could then make sure that you uh, discharge that promise at the far end. So then a little bit later, you were then uh, promoted into commander in chief. Uh, just tell us a little bit about what that role entailed and, um, the influence that you felt you and the difference you felt you were able to make in that role. Well, the, uh, the, the in those days there were there were two um, four star officers, two air chief marshals in the in the Royal Air Force, and one was the uh, the chief of the air staff, who's the uh, the, the, the primus inter pares of, of those two, uh, chap called Steve Dalton, and um, he lives in London and effectively works the money and the politics, mm. uh, and sets the, uh, the, the 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 big policy and and, and strategy issues. So um, really important job, but in my opinion, not, not the more fun of the, the two jobs. And the job I had was literally commander in chief. So the, uh, the chief of the air staff, although he's, let's say, Primus Inter Paris, 
is not the person making things happen on a uh, on a day-to-day basis so mm. you are in command of the it was close to 40,000 people at that point 40,000 people in the Royal Air Force um, all work to you being deployed out to go and work for a for a naval unit or an army or a joint uh, a joint unit so all the stations are yours and all the people and again it was it was always about the people it's all yeah. about the people always so that then became the uh, the, the issue as, as commander-in-chief so visibility and getting around seeing the people um, being held to account was uh, was really important so a really quite demanding visit schedule to the uh, the stations uh, making sure that one was up on the stage in front of the whole station um, at least annually bigger stations uh, twice per year and then the uh, the real challenge came in that there are um, we, we've just come to the uh, the end or the the output effectively 2010 defense review and at that point, uh, we are standing down, or the decision to be made by government to stand down the Harrier Force and also the, uh, the Nimrod Force. And um, we could have a long conversation about that, but that was the decision made. So that, that's the, uh, the, the chalice in inverted commas you inherit. So you have to go up to uh, Wittering and Cottesmore, which is where the Harriers were, and up to, uh, to Kinloss, which is where the, uh, the Nimrods were, and explain to these forces that, uh, very sorry, um, you, you, your, your future is very short to manage the drawdown. And this was exactly the opposite to the time at Innsworth, where um, there were enough people and enough jobs. You've now arguably got too many people, um, and very cleverly and deeply trained, and you know, the best in the world, like I say, both those two forces. Um, flying those type of aircraft um, and this capability is going to go away and then you've got to go managing that. So that was uh, that was a real challenge and the, the most difficult bit of the time. Yes and, and being a person who's passionate about people <clears throat> as well to manage uh, you know that conversation not just that conversation to see those people with a future in a completely different direction I guess is is very tough very tough. Yeah, but again, uh, the, the, you've just got to be honest. Yes. Uh, so, so people don't want to be to be lied to, and they're they're, they're quite good when mm. they're resilient, and you do your best. And as an ex-poster, you, you you spend a lot of time with the guys then um, in the um, in the personnel world, trying to make sure that appropriate postings were were arrived at. It wasn't about time, so people were allowed to mark time. Mm their domestic circumstances um, in, into as good a state as possible. And again, particularly difficult for the people up in Kinloss because um, way up in the north of Scotland, and many of them had, uh, there was the only base to be at. Families are set there and very settled and, and very difficult for many of them to, uh, to visit a, a life away from that. So you then left the RAF and you went and you joined BAE Systems. How did you f- manage the, the change in culture? between life within the RAF into BAE? By, by managing yourself. So there, there is a degree of acting that goes on, I, I think, in, in most people's lives. There was a role to play um, as I was being in the Air Force, and there were things that are expected if you were going to, uh, to, to prosper in that community. And you, you can't completely transform yourself, but you, you can make a, um, a, a significant um, adjustment to your behaviours. I'm by nature an introvert, and that had to be a little bit suppressed in the service. Um, time to gather your energy and things. Um, you, you had to go and find a way of generating that. So moving into BAE Systems, um, fascinating. I mean, wonderful that they gave me the opportunity. And um, they, they basically said, go off and educate yourself about the company. 
and I had a most marvelous um, three months of apprenticeship going um, hither and thither as I wanted to, uh, to try and put together the 30 years of experience that they'd had in the company uh, while I'd been doing my, my 35 years in the, um, in, in the Royal Air Force. And that meant that the, uh, the role was um, less um, evident leadership and it was um, so quieter. Uh, if you're doing colors, um, you need to be a little bit more red in the Air Force in, in the leadership there, and more green, I think, in the, uh, the BAE systems world. Uh, but the, the company, again, was, was brilliant in that they allowed me uh, my, my first proper job, if you like, having had my, my three months of apprenticeship, was to go out to Oman and look after a contract over there. So I was given a little empire of my own. And um, again, without um, reverting to being a, a red person, one was able to go and set up in, in Amman from scratch, uh, a new uh, fighter squadron, um, including the building of a brand new base. Um, wasn't all our responsibility, but very heavily influencing what was going on. Also uh, a significant enhancement, including aircraft uh, for their, their training system. Again, much of that was done, um, not in a, an authoritative fashion, but you, you're doing it um, through persuasion. And it didn't matter whether you're quietly persuading the, the people in the company that that is the, uh, the right thing to do, because uh, this was really quite a unique um, opportunity. We hadn't done anything like this. There was, there was an arrangement in Saudi uh, where we'd gone off and then a, a large contingent, obviously, with the Royal Air Force, where the BA systems was increasingly embedded. But to, to go off and set this up from scratch was, uh, was, was a wonderful opportunity. So I want to take you back just finally to... Um at boarding school at Stanford School. And I'm just wondering if you could give your younger self one piece of advice to help them on their way, what would that be? The things that have worked for me is always seizing the day, um, putting as, uh, as much in there as you, um, as you possibly can. Um, front load, so get, get things done and on the table. Don't um, vacillate and, and, and make a decision and, and just go forward and, and try and drive it in the, uh, in, the, in the direction you want. And the, the trick then out of that, the, the output is, is you know, have you made a difference? And it didn't matter whether it was on the, uh, on, on, on the rugby field um, or when you were doing something in the, the Air Force to improve the, um, the HR system, for example. Um, you know, mm. So you, you end up with that, that sense of satisfaction, which is, um, which is so good. So I, I think those are the things that I would drive. Um, but I had a fantastic mentor and uh, a chap called General Rupert Smith when I, I served in, um, in, in Belgium for him. He was the Deputy Supreme Allied Commander. And uh, he, well, firstly, get a mentor or get as many yes. mentors as you can because um, vicarious experience um, and, and, and learning from others. And, and he would sit me down for half an hour, whether I wanted it or not, at lunchtime and, and talk to me about laying down mortars or the Falklands or whatever it would, but it was always learn, 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 and, and, and so much from him. And the, uh, the words that um, he left ringing in my ears um, was that um, there is always a way. There is always a way. Mm. And it might not be the most obvious way. Um, it may be a little bit of a, a route and, uh, you know, then there may be uh, a diversion. Uh, you may have to go laterally before you can go forward. And then with a little bit of luck, uh, then funny old thing, things have worked out okay. That's right. So Simon Bryan, thanks so much for your time this afternoon. It's been uh, fascinating listening to your journey. Thanks, Andrew. My pleasure.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.